Broadcasting live from the bizarre spin-off prequel to The Last Witch Hunter, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Garrett Strother, and I admire your self-control, Seamus, to not do a name bit with your Dungeons & Dragons character right off the bat. Initially, I was going to pull my actual dice out and try to roll it loud enough to be on the mic and do a bit there, but I didn't want to leave you out of the fun. And what if you rolled a nat 1 on how this episode was going to go? Could you imagine that? We would just delete it. We just we just skip this one, I think. <laughs> no Dungeons & Dragons episode. Before we do Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, our main segment for today, we are going to have to get into... Some news, of course. Starting off with the honestly pretty exciting news that Scott Pilgrim is getting an anime series at Netflix with the entire original cast, which is kind of insane. I mean, this is, what is this, the fifth different version of what the Scott Pilgrim story is? I mean... Will this be just a retelling of the books in like a way that the live action movie didn't cover? Is it going to be some kind of continuation? I, I don't really know yet, but it's still going to be interesting. Scott Pilgrim, as a story, pulls from so many different mediums and intermingles them. And we definitely talked about this when we covered the video game a couple years ago. It is this weird story that exists in so many mediums. And it's kind of interesting to see them all conglomerate and fill in gaps that the others don't have different aesthetics. The idea of, one, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is one of the best cast movies of all time. I think oh, every yes. single actor is killing it in their role. But this idea of bringing the cohesion of, yeah, of course the characters from the movie are played by the same characters as from the anime because... Scott Pilgrim is one big story that all works together regardless of medium is such a compelling idea because we've had the black and white graphic novel, the color graphic novel, the movie, the video game, and now this anime. And not to mention, I mean, one of my absolute pleasures in revisiting the Scott Pilgrim verse, did you, of course, remember the Adult Swim animated shorts that they did. Of course, I would have not remembered to mention those, but yes. That's, that's where my mind actually went to first when I heard that they were doing an animated show for Scott Pilgrim, because that was such an awesome translation of stuff from the comics that they definitely reference in the live-action movie, of course, but expanding on the ideas that were kind of lost from book to movie because of it's a different kind of way to tell that story, and the story wasn't even necessarily finished yet in the books when that movie was coming out. So I think this will, no matter what it really is trying to do, it'll be a very fun, cool thing. And most fun of all, Garrett, we don't have to, like specifically with Scott Pilgrim, we don't really have to worry about any continuity-breaking yeah. garbage that people will probably try to whine about anyway but like you're saying it's it's every medium it's all over the place it's just going to be a great addition to the lineup we are both excited about this news and i hope netflix doesn't cancel it like they do with all their exciting animation stuff so i guess we have to cross our fingers for that one speaking of cancellations <laughs> oh the saddest but is it is it though shame i i will before I defend this, I will I will go ahead and say that E3, as of yesterday afternoon, as of the day of recording, was canceled for, I think, the first time since it started. I mean, 
I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, Shames, but there is a worldwide pandemic. Hey, <laughs> I don't listen to any hoax talk on this show, Garrett, okay? I don't believe in any of that. It isn't a huge surprise that for the last few years, larger companies like Sony and Nintendo have been pulling out their participation, but now it's just kind of dead in the water with every major gaming company. I guess the indies aren't cutting it, and it's just fully canceled. I am personally sad. I know if I really boil it down, E3 granted more disappointment than actual exciting things, but there were some there were some moments, Garrett, at E3 watching those stupid live streams that were always the best. Do you think we see another E3, or do you think this is the end? I think it's over with. There's no there's no way. If anything, if if in however much time that these companies decide they want to come back together to do a big convention together again, it will be under a different name, in a different kind of way. I I think this is just the weird fizzle out, and everyone's just staying in their own corner now. Jeff Keighley has something that happens in the su- like the summer game show or something right is that is that what that is i know there's the there's the tokyo game show and there's summer game fest summer game fest i don't even really know that here forbes just put out summer game fest swipes ubisoft as e3 2023 continues to collapse <laughs> oh god well ubisoft's a pretty big game. are we just about to see like a weird arms race of who can get the big gaming convention it's just gonna be a weird annoying we have to pay attention to three or four different ones now instead of just having it all in one place i don't really mind tuning into the nintendo direct and the playstation whatever the thing is called i, the, I watch the, uh state of play my state friend of play, yeah and i don't watch the xbox ones but so, in the next calendar year i will probably own an xbox so so I now you're gonna have start. to watch them all separately i guess i mean it's nice that i really only play playstation so it's nice to have it just boiled all the way down to me what would make sense is if each major game console so sony nintendo and xbox that was a weird way to say that I get you are following. Me um, and the audience are following along. If they each have their own showcase for their, you know, exclusives and each of them owns so many different game companies. And then for things like Ubisoft, who are making cross-platform games, if they have something that's more centralized. Honestly, I feel like the Game Awards that just happened, that was bigger oh, than yeah. E3 has been in years. And that all goes back to say, even though I don't know a ton about video games, and I'm the first one to admit that, seems like Jeff Keighley has kind of found a way to conglomerate the industry in a way that gaming has been trying to do for years. It's just such a big changes and it's not as if i was counting down the days for e3 or really any of these these showcases that i just kind of find out about them like oh that's happening today and i jump on now but i feel like it's just so splintered and fragmented now it's either gonna lead to hopefully the success of things like the summer game show idea but Maybe even more major studio acquisitions, like the speeding up of that kind of behavior because they're trying to stack whatever specific corner of a game show thing they're trying to do. It'll be interesting to see when E3 officially kicks the bucket and says, we're Dunzo McGunzo. And that's exactly uh, how they'll say it in the like, finger guns. <laughs> a tweet with the finger guns emoji and the cowboy hat smiley face guy. That's my professional email signature. Is that with the emojis? <laughs> Dunzo McGunzo, Seamus Connolly. 
But anyway, do you want to get into some different kind of gaming talk? Some tabletop gaming talk? Tabletop gaming. Let's get into Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Please. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about the brand new movie, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Seamus, we didn't really know what to expect out of this movie, but I think we both ended up enjoying it but i'm gonna Mm. let you present your full initial thoughts i actually enjoyed the hell out of this movie garrett i i tried to avoid as much of the promo stuff as i could i I only think i saw the first trailer i think in front of like avatar maybe the only other thing i saw was that dumb old spice commercial that wouldn't stop stalking me on reddit so that that was the only (laughs) other thing i saw but I had a great time. I had these thoughts of like, Dungeons and Dragons is what it is because you sit at a table with your friends and you goof around and you make a lot of jokes and laugh and like do the thing in a way that is like very unique and personal to the people that you're like with. There weren't even meta weird references to, you know, working together in that right, but the elements of D&D, the things that you can recognize, the rules that they choose to showcase are done in such a really non-explainy kind of way. It's like, if you know D&D, if you've played a couple sessions, you can pick up on a lot of the small things that make this movie feel like a D&D movie and not just like fantasy movie number one million that could just fall into the depths as soon as it comes out. I feel like I would revisit this movie again. I feel like I would be excited even for a sequel. I wasn't necessarily super excited for this. I was pretty cautiously optimistic, but if slash when they announce a sequel to this one or like another movie in the, the D and D verse, I, I would be pretty jazzed about it, Garrett. But, but what what are your thoughts? I think non-explaining is a funny way to say that because, to me, the most meta moments of this movie acknowledging its D&Dness was like, we can only use this magical item in a hundred foot radius, (laughs) or when, I won't spoil it, there's a really good joke towards the midpoint about some of the convoluted nature of D&D rules. I liked that it treaded the line pretty well between this is a D&D movie that we're going to play with the D&D tropes and D&D aesthetics without just being trite and a rehash and cliche because there's been so many things that not only are influenced by D&D but also that D&D is influenced by and kind of like we talked about a couple weeks ago with The Last of Us, I didn't want to just see a watered-down version of the Lord of the Rings, you know, Mm. because D&D is a watered-down version of Lord of the Rings in some ways. And and I shouldn't be surprised that I enjoyed the kind of meta-gaming narrative going on in this film, because John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, the directors of this film, also are the guys who did Game Night, which I think pulled off another very successful, in that case, taking the aesthetics of board games and not to mention the david fincher movie the game and turning it into its own really funny Mm -hmm. clever action thriller which is mostly a comedy i will say though i think that the craft on display in dungeons and dragons i was more impressed with the action than the comedy which is the opposite of what i was expecting going into this movie not only are there some really impressive animatronics that they're using that are obviously enhanced with cgi for a lot of the creatures in this film and things like split diopter shots in a 
studio action comedy. When is the last right? time you saw a split diopter shot and an action comedy? Which, the studio action comedy has been superhero movies for the last ten years, and finally we're kind of making action comedies that aren't that, and it's a breath of fresh air, but yeah, the action sequences in this movie, I thought, were by and large phenomenal really inventive and exciting and i won't spoil any of them in this part of the segment but i was really excited to see how inventive they were a little bit disappointed that this movie wasn't funnier but it does have its moments yeah that's kind of how i feel about the humor of this movie as well they've got their cheeky moments and their fun winks and the characters themselves actually do and say some pretty funny things with each other but yeah, there was maybe less of that. Like, I feel like they were all banking on a lot of the humor from the set pieces and scenes that are like, hey, you get it? This is like in reference to a rules as written idea from the player's handbook in a way that is like a visual representation. Look at that. And then the quippiness of even, I mean, I very much enjoyed Chris Pine. I thought he was he was great. He's never not a handsome man. He's never not the most handsome guy in a movie, truly. But I feel like he didn't get as much personality to his humor as I wanted to. The only thing I knew about him was that he, you know, he was maybe a bard or like some kind of musically inclined guy. And and it didn't really seem to come through as much for him as the main character. He's doing what he can with what he's given. Mm. And I think we'll get into some of his story in spoilers. But yeah, I just feel like he wasn't as charmingly written as he probably needed to be, and therefore Chris Pine was having to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Was he miscast? Maybe. I've been kind of going back and forth on where to lay that. Would a different actor have been better suited for the role, or should they have just written the role a little bit differently in a way that Chris Pine would have been better at? Because the idea of Chris Pine being the lead in this movie makes complete sense to me. Mm -hmm. And in a way, he kind of already did a similar role in... Into the Woods, a movie that he is the only real good part of because he's the only guy who understands what movie he's in. Altogether, I feel like the cast and, and the performances in this were not bad at all. I mean, there was maybe a couple parts where, again, it kind of fell down into the writing that it, it made me feel a little weirder. But the actors themselves are really like uh, the guy who plays Simon. I am Justice on. Smith. Great. He was lo- I loved him. He was maybe my favorite part of this movie, if I'm being honest. He, he kind of got a lot of that fun humor, a lot of the magic shenanigans with his wild sorcerer role. I, I enjoyed him a lot. Something I really liked about this movie that I think helped it feel more like a D&D campaign is the fact that the cast come from such disparate backgrounds. They're all more or less established actors, but to me, a lot of them felt like newcomers because they are in things that I don't necessarily know and then they're mixed with actors who I've seen you know a lot of actors like Chris Pine Michelle Rodriguez and Hugh Grant obviously I spent a lot of time with through various franchises and they've been on the scene for several decades and then you've got the younger cast members Renee Jean Page who hmm. I'm really only aware of being in Bridgerton, but I think he was in a couple of other, like, I think he was in, um, Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans, that movie, that... Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans? That Netflix movie, what's it called? The Gray Man. Yeah, I think he was I in that. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's but... supposed to be not good. I did not watch it. I got, I got it. And then Justice Smith, obviously, who I believe was in Detective Pikachu, am I right about that? 
Could be. I didn't see that movie. I didn't see it either. And then Sophia Lillis, who I only know from It. So I feel like that's a good mixture of actors who are really well established in big blockbuster franchises. And then you've got the younger actors who are mostly known for films that have different demographics that might be successful, but, you know, Detective Pikachu and It aren't exactly mainstream summer blockbusters and then Renee Jean Page from Bridgerton. I mean, that's a soap opera-y Netflix show. I cannot wait to get into his character and kind of how that kind of casting works incredibly well with with what they're doing with him. It's brilliant. I really do think that, (laughs) again, it helps the film feel so eclectic that this party of adventurers really do come from different worlds and different backgrounds. So much of real D&D, I would say more than half of real D&D is based on thinking on your feet and like improv and like those kind of eclectic ideas that you're trying to frantically work together that the plot of this movie kind of has in a way. The, the elements of that planning and replanning and failing and trying to get a critical failures, the idea of like moments where you feel like they might be rolling poorly quote-unquote in in what is happening in whatever check is going on i thoroughly enjoyed that style of of how they were writing this what felt like a pretty long adventure i don't know if i'd call that a one shot but i i don't know if it's a full campaign well how are you ever going to adapt the scale of a DD campaign to a movie that's kind of an impossibility and i think it's structured pretty well You mentioned before the practical effects of a lot of the creatures is something that I actually didn't know about going into this, and it's something I really appreciated. A couple of the creatures looked really weird, not going to lie, not going to let them off the hook entirely, but... I appreciated it way more than if it was just even more of a big CGI fest than, you know, some parts of this movie turn out to be. I, I appreciated the tabaxi and the aracacra, like a lot of the animal humanoid creatures I thought were well done enough that I, I appreciated how physically involved they felt in the environments. I feel like this should be like a bare minimum expectation for movies of this scale, but it feels like they're in real places going off of that. Yeah. It feels like they're actually outside sometimes. Yeah, it feels like they're on set doing things on locations. They shot in, like, Ireland and Finland, and they were in fantasy landscape-style places. It felt like they were putting in the work to make it not just on the green screen. Granted, again, plenty of that. It's a big fantasy place. Can't build big castles like that or whatever, but they're in those streets. They build those streets. It looks nice. They're using effects the way they should be using effects, which is to make the impossible real and not to cut corners on Mm -hmm. fundamental elements of visual storytelling. Exactly. That is a big distinction that we're in the Marvel and Star Wars of it all. It's good to see that this big major film is doing that right. Not the creatures and stuff, just like the makeup and practical effects for the less intricate creatures and monsters that are in this it just looks like the care was put into it it's not just put some dots on this guy's face and wrap a digital effect around them to make him a character it feels like a lot of these characters are being physically affected by the things in the world around them i want more of it i want a sequel i want another idea like this where 
It is still like this grand epic adventure, but it was a fun time. There are fantasy movies that are just dark. We're going to slay a thousand orcs with black blood sliming all over the place and, and make it a big Game of Thrones style sadness time. But I just had a really fun time with this, which is, I guess, all you really want from Dungeons and Dragons in general. Yeah, I agree. My big takeaway from this movie is it's not amazing or anything, but it's mm-hmm. a really fun, competently made film where the filmmakers clearly know their craft and know what they're doing. The action is exciting and easy to follow, well choreographed, and a lot of the time I haven't seen before in a movie. It's a really enjoyable film. Totally. The thing I'm really curious about are all of these stars and the fact that it just looks like a fun time at the movies enough to hit those four quadrants of all the people that don't care about the D&D and give it that widespread appeal. And I think this movie is good enough that it should get that word of mouth going. But I mean, for some reason, even in in the year of our Lord 2023, there's some strange stigma on Dungeons and Dragons. And I feel like even people might get intimidated by the idea of a world with rules and places that already are established. And they're like, oh, well, I didn't play the first Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know what's going to happen in this movie. But fingers crossed, it'll it'll draw enough people in that might even open some doors for people to try the actual game. As we'll talk about a little bit more during our pop culture reference, D&D has never been more mainstream than it is right now, Mm. especially thanks to Stranger Things and season four specifically of Stranger Things that brought a massive boost in popularity that was already rising, especially during the pandemic era. And I think that there are a lot of people that I have met that have very recently, like in the last couple months, started playing D&D, who a couple years ago never would have touched it with a 10-foot pole, and I Mm. think that the mainstreamification of it is hopefully going to be, like, this is the perfect time for them to be releasing a D&D movie. They really lucked out with the way the zeitgeist has kind of trended upward with D&D. Well, I, we will also touch on it in our reference, but it is also a tricky time in the, the whole verse of legal and moral disputes about who can use which system or what but i hope that if anything the potential success of this movie might show wizards of the coast and the people in charge of the official dungeons and dragons licensing things that this is the positive way to spread Dungeons and Dragons around and not the more let's monetize the hell out of everything in the core of our game. This is it, it, it's good to it's good to pay that respect and keep it for everyone and kind of draw in the wider audience like that. But I think it's time for us to move on to spoilers where we can really get into the meat of the movie and the references and the jokes, what worked for us and what didn't. And of course, the thing I'm really excited about, the action sequences. Yes, I let's get into it. Official spoilers here. Actually, I want to first clarify, there is no Vin Diesel in this movie. I know, we, I, we can't, uh, there's no airs we can put on about it. I was hoping the Dungeons and Dragons verse would cross, but no dice for our boy Calder, a name I have always known. A great deal of the first half of this movie is spent kind of building up the fact that Michelle Rodriguez's character has an ex-husband who we don't really know anything about him. (laughs) She wants to go see him multiple times and Chris Pine's like, that's not a good idea. You know, he doesn't want to see you. Especially with the meta quality of the fact that they are, of course, famously a couple in another beloved franchise of ours. (laughs) I was really, really hoping 
that that husband was going to turn out to be Vin Diesel. However, uh, it was you imagine? a hilarious, bizarre cameo from halfling Bradley Cooper. Very funny. I had to do like an almost actual double take to realize that that was Bradley Cooper, but it was a, it's a very funny bit. Regardless of how strange they are, are they are trying to do this like tiny halfling Bradley Cooper perspective stuff. That's some of the worst effects in this movie, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But I also kind of find it funny that it looks bad. Like that's I mean, part I, of the joke to me. Almost. I, I guess it really is because it is. It's supposed. It's like the joke is, hey, it's Bradley Cooper's yeah. in this movie. So like, I don't mind it that much at all. It would have been hilarious to see any D&D race Vin Diesel just, like, make him the orc that they murder at the very beginning or so- something <laughs> like that where he's like, he's the stormtrooper in the helmet in Star Wars, you know? Give him yeah. give him something. He's the D&D man, but he's keeping Calder in his back pocket. He doesn't want his verse tainted when he finally gets to make the second-to-last witch hunter. The penultimate witch hunter. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I would love to see him in a potential sequel to this because they leave plenty of room for whatever they oh, want yeah. to do. That is something that I, I very much enjoyed. Something we were talking about almost right after we were giving our thoughts in the theater. It's like, they set up the BBEG, the big bad evil guy. They set him up wonderfully and have his henchmen be the actual antagonist of this movie so that there's a lovely little looming threat. They gave us a whole big map of the realm so we know there's plenty of interesting places to explore and and venture forth into for whatever the red wizards are doing. A lot of the times in a movie like this, they don't make the stakes big enough of, you know, the mini boss that you're essentially fighting Mm. as the main antagonist of your first movie. And they do too much setup on the big bad who's going to come later. And then usually that's disappointing regardless. I'm looking at you, Sherlock Holmes guy, Richie movies. (laughs) In this one, they tease him just enough for it to be like, yeah, there's plenty of possibility for him to come back and be evil. But the main threat, all of what we're dealing with, is with Hugh Grant and the Red Witch, or Wizard. They are very specific about, they never call her a witch, I don't think. I think they only call her a wizard. I took that as like, in D&D, there's no class that's a witch. You're either a druid or a wizard or a sorcerer so like i i like that that consistency kind of held through with the red wizards yes i agree they also do a good balance of lore dumping without it being boring and annoying that we're doing these flashbacks like Rene Jean Page who was there when the red wizards were anointed essentially when the rings were forged I was there of course yeah it is that energy and they do just enough of his backstory that it's interesting and you get what his character's about without like okay this is like a lot of fantasy to slog through you know even when they do that a little bit they have the awareness to have Chris Pine be like who who wants to talk to this boring guy like this is not my bag it's very dm lore dump the savior npc that's gonna literally offer to hold your hand through the dungeon that you have to get the special item in i will say i was kind of delighted that we did have who is essentially an npc character be present for such a big part of the movie and then also just walk off in a straight line mind you it's such a funny this guy exists for the plot drive of this story basically and he's gonna go back and pull another tabaxi baby out of a big fish or whatever (laughs) that was so funny 
That that was so funny. He takes off his cloak and hands it to a random citizen and does his Jesus work and then walks back off. It's, yeah, it's, it's like real superhero stuff. But <laughs> just hero stuff. Not even superhero. It's hero stuff. And I think that's what's enjoyable about it is it's nice to see these little vignettes of heroes just helping people, which is not something, not even in superherodom, which is often the context we talk about it in, but just in general, it's nice to see heroes being heroes. I thought there was a good amount of that in here. I thought they were going to be playing with the idea of like alignments a little more, and maybe they were, and it was just written so well into the characters, that's just what this character is. But there's plenty of swashbuckling and thieving and jailbreaking things, but ultimately the Chris Pine... I'm coming around to my Harper days of being good for good's sake. It could have been way too corny, but I feel like they towed the line just enough to make it so that it's believable, one, and two. It, like, it kind of felt right, where they could have really gone anywhere with the character whose name I'm actually not even remembering. Chris Pine. I don't remember who... any of the characters' names. I'll be I got Simon. That. I got Simon on lock. And, that's, and, and uh, Hugh Grant is Forge, because I thought that was yeah, a, that's a great, name. strong name. Uncle Forge. Simon is also just a good name for that character. Simon (laughs) is the perfect, underestimates himself, and he does have inner power, but he's kind of a dweeb also. (laughs) That's the right name. Also, like, capable when it counts. I love the capable when it counts dweeb, you know? That's that's Mm -hmm. the best. I want to talk a little bit about Chris Pine's story, because the entire plot is driven by Chris Pine has to get his daughter back after being imprisoned from Hugh Grant's character, who is, of course, surprise, the villain, which they immediately tell us. I'm very grateful for that, that they didn't draw that out more. Yeah, right on the other side of the backstory, they're like, well, here you go. This is exactly why we're here. That could have been really cliche, especially because they've got the permadeath resurrection stone (laughs) that (laughs) you can only use once, and that's the MacGuffin that he's chasing the whole movie in addition to his daughter because he wants to bring his dead wife back who got permadeath by the Red Wizards. You know from the very beginning, if you know anything about storytelling, which I'm sure, Seamus, that you had put this together early on as well, obviously his wife's not coming back. Somebody is going to get dead and he's going to have to sacrifice being with his wife to bring back the member of the party or his daughter or his daughter has to choose to save him etc that was like before the flashback was even over i was like oh got it so it's gonna be michelle rodriguez got it and i think the brilliance of it is that they remove some of the cliche from that by being smart enough to make the distinction and articulate enough in their writing to say by the end of the film you know enough about all of these characters and the way that they interact you understand that he is choosing to let go of his wife to save his daughter's mother. That Michelle Rodriguez is the mother figure that his daughter Mm. needs and that bringing back his wife who died when she was an infant isn't going to mean anything to her even if it does mean something to him. Makes complete sense and honestly it would have been really weird if they did it. I'm sure in however many sequels we're going to be dealing with a, you know, a revivify spell kind of shenanigans that I guarantee will have to come up at some point. Ultimately, I didn't hate it. When you play D&D, you have a tragic backstory. 
but nothing can tear you apart from your weird found family that you meet at a tavern somewhere that you break out of prison with. You go thieving and robbing the treasury with. It makes sense. What made it feel weird to me, there was just like a weird thing where the daughter was like almost telling him to make that choice to save Kilgore, I think was her name. Some mm-hmm. Something Kilgore. Holga Kilgore. Strong name. Love that. Barbarian, probably. I guess they never really say that, but I, they show I it. mean, she's got her axe and... She doesn't say, like, I'm enraged right now, but she's got a couple rage moments, I think. Oh, totally. The resurrection stuff of it all makes sense to me. I hope they don't harp on that too much, considering it kind of seems like the Red Wizards are going to be the bad guy through line of a lot of these adventures and the agents of that weird cult going out and doing bidding. But the nice thing is, again, that they don't so directly set up the sequel that it could be nothing to do with the Red Wizards and something completely different, and it would be fine. That's it true. It would feel weird and dissonant. I would watch any number of weird spin-offs. Dungeons & Dragons, colon, Into the Feywild. Do a Feywild movie where they get trapped there. Or, like, for a minute before the revive, I thought, like, is there going to be some kind of, I want to say Greyhawk is the realm, where it's like it's like a weird black-and-white hellscape that sometimes people go to. Like, let's we got to go find our friend. we got to travel Don style and go save somebody i think you're right they've got a lot of things where they could just be like the red wizards have been hi- in hiding for a couple years since the stuff at uh neverwinter so they get a couple movies where they get to do whatever speaking of i loved when they get to the neverwinter games the high sun games oh the best and you see all of the different D parties who are also <laughs> being forced to participate in these games are those other guys being forced do you think i mean i guess they look I mean, pretty they scared. don't look happy to be there i don't think i would volunteer to be in the the neverwinter death games i want a whole movie Uh, dungeons and dragons colon the sun whatever what is it called high sun sun, high sun high sun games I want that blood sport, Hunger Games, weird moving arenas. I want a lot more of those. I wish they kind of landed on that harder. I think that was a pretty good action sequence. Not the best action sequence in the film, but... I enjoyed, you know, when we get split up in the maze and the characters are fighting different kinds of creatures. and the they get, We get to see we, the mimic. Yeah. I love that, obviously. Whatever that weird panther tentacle hologram creature was, which I should maybe know the name of. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty damn cool. And apparently our, our boy Fritz told us that the guys that they all see in the cage that seem to be in safety are the original animated D&D series characters adapted to live action, <laughs> which is fun. That one guy that looks like Wirt from Over the Garden Wall, gotta, yep. lo- gotta love him. That's that's how I noticed it. You've got the gelatinous cube sequence, yes. which is ultimately how they escape by... I really loved using the shape-shifting to different animals in so many different ways. I thought that was very exciting, and... The idea of, okay, I'm going to be in the gelatinous cube and it's going to take my form. And then if I transform into something smaller, I can get out is brilliant. Then followed by the sequence that I wish that we had a little bit more of. Once they get out of the maze, there are all these walls of the maze that drop down below the arena afterward. And so after they get out of the gelatinous cube down below the arena, there's a moment where they realize, oh man, we have to get out of the way as these things are falling on us. It's almost like the reverse maze where you're just going to get crushed to death. Yeah, I was ready for that Temple of Doom. No one's even supposed to be down there, so they're going to get crushed accidentally almost, and they've got to work around that. But they walk like 10 feet, and they're like, oh, all of our weapons are here magically. (laughs) Great, we're done. That 
that was a funny moment to me of, oh, the DM put the party in a thing where they got all their gear taken away, but then they have the room where all of their gear... It's everything that we've collected through the adventure in this chest. Thank God we found it, like, right conveniently at the exit. Wink, wink enough at the audience to let you know that it's not just a stupid convenience that they're trying to make a little bit of a joke (laughs) out of it, but also we don't have to do a whole thing where they have to go back and get their weapons. Yeah, exactly. They're capable folk. I thought the whole showdown, even post-Maze, was was pretty awesome. I wasn't expecting such a fun showdown with, like, the mage hand showdown between Simon and the the Red Wizard. I know you want to get to the action. I know there's a lot of great action. But there's a lot of, like, singular character takes down the whole squad of bad guys moments. But the the totally. coming together outside of the Coliseum to, to do the final showdown was such a great Avengers back-to-back team-up of, like, everybody's doing their own classes specialty and we're, we're, you know, doing the thing we gotta do. You've got the camera going in a circle around the fight. Yeah. As you see the Red Wizard being slowly overwhelmed as they each one by one take their piece. Yeah, very nice. And then, of course, the Owl Bear Hulk smash puny god style execution of this woman. So they, brutal. They crush this woman to death with boulders. <laughs> mm-hmm. A collapsed building destroys her. I'm a little surprised that Chris Pine didn't get a moment to just screw up Hugh Grant a little bit. That they, they're saving Hugh Grant. He's completely fine and... And savior NPC Rene Jean Page is just there with the light glowing behind him like he's Liv Tyler in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Fun little, I mean, hey, I'd love to see Forge again in sequels. Oh, if he, Because he does his little fun, oh, the DM allowed our let's jump out the window shenanigans in our first session. I'll try it again. And the DM's like, they bricked up that window, obviously. Like, why would that work twice? Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was lovely. Hugh Grant is just very funny he's just like undeniably he just speaks in a very he's got a great everything about him when he's like very uptight like oh this tea is too hot oh this pillar that i'm announcing on has was way higher than we discussed earlier get me the hell down from here very funny stuff there but you know what i'm gonna say garrett i want to see punished forge he lived (laughs) he lived in too much luxury trying to steal that gold from neverwinter now he's in prison Maybe he makes another deal with the with the Reds. Maybe he uh, jumps out a different window with a with a Aarakocra. I would love to see Forge hire the party to do something. Chris Pine's like, why would we ever trust you? And, <laughs> but they have to trust him for some. Like they find a reason that they have to trust him. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they, they he hires them to break him out of the prison that they broke out of. Like Mission Impossible Fallout. Like Mission. <laughs> yes, dude. Yes, yes, yes. But what, what, what could he possibly have? Maybe he's like, I know where there's another tablet of resurrection. I don't know. They'll figure it out. I mean, maybe he's like, fun. I'm the only one who knows where Simon has been kidnapped and whisked away to or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, he knows where some red wizard thing, some red wizard hideout is, and they he has to work. I don't know. I don't know. Something there. We can figure it out. The, the, when we write the sequel. Yeah, when the, the before they theory. hire us, we'll have the script done. We'll, we'll just turn it in. Turnitin.com, the whole script for Dungeons and Dragons colon Hugh Grant's Revenge. Let's talk some other action sequences, though. I think you know the one that I'm dying to talk about, Seamus. I'm actually not sure. I want I want I want to be surprised here. What 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 is your standout? The putting the portal in the carriage is that brilliant. I've never seen incredible. anything like that before. <laughs> Everything about that was great. We transition 
into like the heist mode for a minute, but we're doing it aperture style somehow with Portal, the video game style physics where she like kind of falls into and out of that little portal and doing all the little espionage things at the same time. It's fantastic. It's so brilliant. The idea of, okay, you put the portal on this painting that you stuck to the bottom of the carriage. You remove the planks from the bottom of the carriage, then crawl through the portal, then pull the portal up with you, then put the portal back down to put the planks of the carriage back. It's incredibly well done. Could have been ultimately super duper confusing, but it's it's very snappy, and there's there's still a lot of moments of, like, they do a lot of the strange physics stuff a little fast, so you can't think about it for too long, yeah. but just fast enough where you're like, I'm loving Simon halfway through the portal while the painting is like dragged under the carriage mm-hmm. and he's being held on to. It's incredible. I am a big fan of the action in this film, mostly because I think it's so easy to follow and so well choreographed. They're really holding on to choreography that you see they worked hard on and the actors practiced doing. I appreciated so much of the action in this movie. There was, I think maybe Michelle Rodriguez armory fight, it was a little choppy. Like, that was maybe the only one that they really relied on the quick cuts a and lot. I almost feel like that was more, because she's doing a lot of, like, spinning and throwing yeah, chains uh, and stuff in that. I almost wonder if that was more cutting around a stunt double than it was oh, yeah, maybe. trying to hide bad action. You might be right there. And I mean, it wasn't even into, like as distracting as some action scenes I've seen in, in major budget movies. So overall, I mean, a lot of fun stuff here. I Like I said, I kind of maybe wanted a little more. Everybody in the team is fighting an enemy together, but things like Simon's intro where he's trying to rob the townsfolk with his magic show and then his wild magic surge, which starts to, like, flip gravity for everybody, I thought was very fun. I was a little bit disappointed. I was really hoping there would be a moment where he had to flip gravity to get to the portal. Oh, yeah, that would have been great. But it was a magic, it was a wild magic surge, Darren. I know, you couldn't control it, buddy. But still, I was just hoping that that would, because those two things seem so perfect for each other, the idea of being yeah. able to manipulate gravity, and then, of course, the portals, which already manipulate gravity, weirdly. Falling into a portal from reversed gravity to shoot you out the other side in a different kind of gravity. Yeah, that that would have been very nice. I think you're following, Seamus. You understand. I'm, I'm thinking with portals, Garrett, if you know what I mean. I'm sure the hither-thither staff is a real item, too. I would, I would so. love to have that in, in a real game sometime. That seems like endless shenanigans. I love that they just turned the sending stones into walkie-talkies. I think that's <laughs> yeah. really funny. What did he say? The rules were different. It's like... They only work for an hour. For an hour, You don't get, like, 160 characters and once a day like you do in the real Dungeons & Dragons. But it's still, they put a limitation on it, which is good. The really funny joke of all that is the idea that they have feedback when they're all standing next to each other. I think it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, that, that that is so funny. The first sequence of trying to get intel on the vault where all of the different animals shape-shifting through I, the castle yes, grounds. Yes, dude, I w- was just about to bring up the wild shape chase because it's so fun and fluid and 
I even, like, you know, rolled my eyes a little bit, but ultimately the joke about the deer is pretty funny. I mean, they could have just shown it and not had then a smash cut to Michelle Rodriguez saying, see, he did turn, she did turn into a deer. It's like, yeah, that is, that was the joke that we saw a second ago. Like, we didn't have to say it. But otherwise, like, you know, from fly to rat to falcon falcon or eagle or whatever like i thought that was really great and also top notch game night style camera goofiness of following all those different animals and the different kind of movements that each of those animals exhibited the camera kind of followed and changed with it i thought it was really really well done actually i was about to say i wish they did more wild shape stuff the wild shape is one of maybe the biggest things that that character relies on if i'm being honest i feel like very little tiefling personality comes through in that character which i'm a little sad about because everyone was like oh it just looks like a human with horns and it's like tieflings can look like regular human skin pigment or whatever but all of the like half demon personality of like what those characters can be was kind of lost she could have just been a human druid at that point yeah there's a couple of things going on there i think one sophia lillis who is doing a good job but she's also a romantic lead in this film that she and simon are having that little i'm kind of impressed with their restraint that they didn't have a bigger kiss moment or something towards the end i mean i fully expect the next movie to pick up and they're not together it's like they, they tried it out again and they're still broken up when we're back but from a movie producer perspective you're wanting both of your romantic leads to be conventionally attractive and so you're yes that's true some kind of weird dude come on you don't think every weird gross nerd in the world would love uh like a weird like red tinted skin tiefling chick i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not saying that they wouldn't do that and obviously you know you've got <laughs> you've got gamora and the guardians of the galaxy there's yeah, precedent yeah. for big movies doing stuff like that but i i think it just feels safer probably for them to not worry yeah, about th- that yeah i mean that that is true i i will agree to that I, that that is one uh, other thing about the party itself that i i was wishing for a little more variety in race of of characters cuz we have simon's a half elf but again there's like nothing that they really do he's got do funny with... little ears and that's it that's it i stopped noticing the ears most of the time you know even even for could have been not a human he didn't even really seem to have a class besides like rogue a, maybe i was gonna say he's a rogue i guess if you have hugh grant you want to have hugh grant but and that's the role you get a big established actor for that's the role true that true you're looking for somebody to lend a little bit more gravitas that's your alec guinness right all right you're not wrong you're not wrong but make simon a full elf why not i mean like why i'm sure more sequels more people will join the party and and it'll be all the weird new races like the panda guy there's like a panda race now i think you know more about this stuff than i do seamus you know i could just be thinking of kung fu panda too so who knows you want to talk about digging up the graveyard full (laughs) of soldiers full of corpses that Michelle Rodriguez then later reveals like made her feel bad which I was like what you suddenly care you didn't care in the moment it seemed like well I mean it's you know it's for honor it's for the it's for I know but she's like er, later in the movie she's like we dug up my family and it's like yeah but it's for the greater good and when it felt like that plan was for nothing that's when you would become upset about like what if you desecrated the Connolly family plot Seamus the the Connolly catacombs (laughs) somewhere in the north side of Chicago and then after you got whatever information you needed from the catacombs, you found out that that I had been lying to you about what we needed I from guess there. That's true. That's true. But then that does lead to a lot of fun stuff with Simon's attunement 
thing where he's like speaking to the ghost of his great great grandfather a great sorcerer in his bloodline and and how attunement in the game in D&D the game is so much simpler I feel like it's just like spending time bonding with a magical well, item but this and that, was that's like what a, was funny when Chris Pine was like We've got six hours. Go do it. Like, we're making camp, and that's when you do your attunement, yeah. right? Yeah, is six hours a short rest or a long rest? Because that is too specific. Is <laughs> six hours is a sh- long rest, right? I would think, but I have no idea. Like, four hours is a short rest? But, I don't know. I, I, I very much, I like that, too. Very funny. The creatures that can sense a low intelligence score, I think, is just a, a good, quick bit that that's they a, do. I mean, that's a slam dunk, right? Yeah. That's your dad putting his hand on your head and going, this is a brain sucker and it's hungry, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned when we got out of the theater, Simon ruining the bridge puzzle because he was not listening to the DM lore dump about how the puzzle works, I think is very funny. Very, very funny. Coupling that with one of my favorite jokes, which is something that I guarantee I've done in character at the table, which is like, Oh, there's a huge gap. I can tie a rope to my axe and just throw it across. It'll stick to the rocks, right? And then other characters be like, do you think that's how any of this works? Like, that's n- not at all, at all how that would work. Those were the good moments of Betty Huber. I especially liked when they're digging up the corpses and they have to ask them questions. He's like, okay, you get five questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a low-hanging, like, Monty Python bit of every question you ask the corpse is going to answer whether or not you're talking to it or just the idea of like we get five questions why is it five questions i don't know it just is it's like yeah don't question the rules of a magical item just work with it i will say the one sequence that i wanted a little bit more out of is right after the the collapsing bridge when they're on the hanging city yes the teeter-totter platform Mm -hmm. that's when the dragon comes and they just don't really do anything with the teeter-totter platforms except for one bit where Chris Pine is about to get swallowed by the dragon and Rene Jean-Page saves him. Granted, I think the whole fat dragon in general, I feel like, was a little bit of a wasted scene. I feel Agreed. like, if anything, they could have plussed it up by making the dragon a little more of a threat. Maybe making the red wizard assassin squad and the party have to not like work together, but in tandem fight this dragon in a way that's not, they're just all running in one direction, Scooby-Doo style and trying to get away from it. One thing I loved about the dragon was his weird handicap of his breath weapon, not sparking. He still has like a gas leak breath weapon thing that they used to blow their way out of the bunker there but that was pretty much all i liked out of that fat dragon stuff i agree they were just like this is the dungeons and dragons movie we need to go to the dungeon and have a dragon have a dragon yeah it felt like more of a check mark than a sequence they had a really good idea for there's that flashback sequence with the big battle of the graveyard of dudes that they're talking to where there's the stone dragon whose breath weapon is just a stream of boulders that i thought was awesome that they really hit that one moment (laughs) in the trailer and then that it's gone for the even the rest of that scene i think that's what we've got to talk about though for dungeons and dragons honor among thieves i hope they make more of these movies because i enjoyed this one it wasn't perfect but it was better than i expected it to be so That's kind of my biggest takeaway here with thinking about this movie. It's like, we talk on this show a lot about movies that are not the best movies, but are fun or that we enjoy. And we ultimately, we spend a lot of time dissecting why we can't fully give our endorsement. But for whatever reason, this one, it's just like, I can't really think of much besides of all the things that I really liked about it. And I I agree that I want to see sequels. I, I was saying I wanted to see a sequel... The second those credits rolled, I I was ready for it, you know? I I, I really enjoyed this, and 
I, I will probably revisit it again with some other fantasy friends, I feel like. This is a good one to just kind of watch around with some buddies. What do you say that we move on to today's pop culture reference and talk a little bit more about D&D? Let's roll on over there, buddy. Today's pop culture reference is the history of Dungeons & Dragons. Commonly referred to as D&D, Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game that was first published in 1974 by Tactical Studies Rules Incorporated, who, the following year, would go on to purchase Gen Con, the tabletop game convention founded by D&D creator Gary Gygax. In almost immediate success, the game spawned several iterations and has consistently remained the most popular of its ilk. However, as the market saturated and moral panics surrounding Satanism rose in the mid-1980s, sales began to drop. A series of layoffs and contractions still saw tactical studies in over $1.5 million in debt, leading to the ousting of then-CEO Gary Gygax. Under new leadership, TSR found financial recovery and success in new licensed games and diversification into fields such as comics and novels. The success was short-lived, however, as by the mid-90s, sales across their massive production scope began to wane, and the company once again entered massive amounts of debt. In 1997, with no hope of saving the company, TSR was sold to Wizards of the Coast, a gaming company which had exploded onto the scene a few years earlier when they debuted their card game Magic the Gathering at Gen Con. With the popularity of their new third edition of D&D, Wizards of the Coast themselves were acquired by Hasbro in 1999. It was right after this that the open game license was introduced, a public copyright license that allowed third-party creators to use and modify elements like game mechanics for other tabletop role-playing games. In the years since, D&D has seen a steady incline in popularity, with a massive boom occurring around and following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. As sales of hobby products increased and cultural touchstones such as the TV series Stranger Things prominently featured D&D. With D&D at an all-time high in popularity, Hasbro made the decision to rewrite their open game license. The OGL, which was first put in place in the year 2000, allowed for the creation of official D&D competitors like Pathfinder and Critical Role, as well as many RPG video games like the Knights of the Old Republic series. OGL 1.1 would restrict the use of the original D&D rules and format to only officially licensed products through Wizards of the Coast, roll back years of legal protections for countless RPG systems that were assumed from the first edition of the OGL, and monetize access to the core game-building tools for future projects, including independent producers. Pathfinder publisher Paizo has since come out with plans to create a completely free alternative to the official Wizards of the Coast OGL update, in hopes to fill the gap while various lawsuits and controversies tangle up the newest editions of the OGL 1.1. Though Wizards of the Coast has since retracted OGL 1.1 after mass pushback from players and content creators, making multiple online apologies and promising to roll out future updates that do not encroach on player and creator accessibility, many do not trust the future intentions of Wizards of the Coast to heavily monetize and restrict the use of the OGL as implied by leaked internal corporate emails. A lot of what? stuff. <laughs> it's a kind of a messy history of this game. There was Satan was involved at one point, Christian Satan, and now it's just our... our favorite flavor of corporate greed kind of seeping its way into a game that can be played with pencils and paper. It's very strange. But anyway, what do you say we kick it on over to Mando Bros before we get too far into D&D stuff? Again? So much Mando to talk about. This episode's oh, going to be a million years long. It really is. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Now it's time.
it's time for Mando Bros, where we break down our weekly episode of The Mandalorian. This week's episode is season three, episode five, I want to say. You the, are correct. And it, what is it called, Seamus? The Pirate, of Look course. You. you know things. I know things, Garrett. My goodness. We've been literally saying this for weeks. We're in the danger zone. We're in the, we're in like the, is this season good or not? And, and there this, are... is the, this, is this, this is the perfect encapsulation of everything <laughs> the season has been thus far. And, I, and you know what, Garrett? I'm still confused. I still don't have an answer to if this season is good or not. I will say I'm still excited, especially after uh, maybe one or two really specific things that happened in this week's episode. But I think this was a good one. I think it was better than last week's episode, maybe or half of last week's episode for sure. But what did you think about this one? Definitely better than last week's episode. And lots of things that got me excited in this episode. I'm going to say we finally got episode two of this season (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh my god we really did it's still got no direction that's my really big problem with the season it continues throughout here is that i have a little bit more of a concrete idea of where it's going but there's still not a main character who is driving the plot in any real way it's just a series of things that are happening in the Star Wars universe, and they're all in the same show. I I would argue that episode by episode, week to week, they're letting, like, Bo-Katan maybe take that role, but it's like, we're five episodes in, guys. Let's, like, pull the trigger on this already, and, like, we can, we can settle into what the season is before we're at the halfway point, which is, what, next week? I don't even know how many chapters there's going to be in this season, so maybe this might have been the halfway point itself. Might have only been 10. Well, I agree with you. It's a little meandering on, like, we need to lock into something already. Because there's, like, three different small things happening, but they can happen while we have, like, a focus, you know? They've shown us that they can build in a good subplot here and there, a good side episode here and there, while we have something to grasp, something that we can we can follow along here, but... Hell, next week might even straight up... Oh, okay, I don't want to get too far into it. Yeah, Never correct. mind, I'm sorry. I, I was about to go off on my, my high voice tangents. One of the things that I wish it were doing is sometimes in TV shows you get seasons where you're like, okay, we're going to zero in on this character and they're going to be the protagonist. And mm-hmm. the name The Mandalorian would allow you to be like, okay, this season, you know who's The Mandalorian? is Bo-Katan. She's The Mandalorian. That's what I'm saying. And they could really... like Like you said, they've been flirting with that idea. But they haven't fully locked it in yet. It's too meandering. That's exactly the right word. And we're going to have to immediately get into spoilers because there's so much going on. We gotta. Spoiler threshold here. Go watch this episode maybe first before continuing. Yeah, because it's not going to make any sense to you if you do not watch this episode before we discuss it, I don't think. Because there's just so much weirdness going on. (laughs) There really is. But I want to start off the spoiler segment with two words, seven syllables. Wait, what? Okay. Garazeb Aurelios. Yes, baby! Oh my god. We've been talking for straight up weeks on and off the podcast <laughs> about like, could they pull off live action Zeb? Nah, they won't bring him in. Nah, it'll probably just be like Hera and Chopper and Ezra, but like- Literally the- everybody but Zeb. <laughs> but he's here, man, and he looks like good. He doesn't look as creepy as I thought he might. I think he is honestly, of all the Disney Plus shows that have brought animated characters in live action, you know, on Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Inquisitors brought into mm-hmm. live action, which had varying degrees of success. I think you and I agreed during the Obi-Wan Kenobi show 
We had Cad Bane on Book of Boba Fett, who was pretty well adapted, even if they didn't well, really know what to do with that character. Sure. But I do think that Zeb looks the best out of all of those, which, ironically, he's the most CG of them all. So, yeah. Head to go. toe, really. I mean, he's buddies with our best friend, X-Wing pilot, whose character name we should probably figure out by now. Uh, Carson you... Teva. Carson Teva, uh, we'll my probably man. just continue to call him Kim's Convenience. Kim's Convenience, yeah, I'm trying to not do that. It seems weird, even though I do that with every character from every show. It's like, oh, hey, that's Arrested Development over there. It's like, just the tip of my tongue kind of name, but he's great. He's here. He's buddies with Zeb. He's like, maybe like X-Wing Squadron partners think, with Zeb. It seems like Zeb is a New Republic Ranger on the Outer Rim. Which I'm kind of theorizing that maybe, and again, they keep doing this to us where they're like, we're not going to tell a good story, but we're going to entice you with (laughs) stuff that you like. You think Zeb is maybe hoping that if he's out here on the Outer Rim, he might run into somebody who he might be looking for from Rebels that we don't know the whereabouts of? So it was nice to see him. He's barely in this episode, but I just, I wanted to bring him up and get him out of the way. The best. I'm very excited. If anything, this gives me more hope that he'll be in whatever becomes of the Rangers of the New Republic storyline. I was about to say that this is transparently, they're shoving stuff that was supposed to be in Rangers of the New Republic into this season of The Mandalorian. I think that's the reason that this season is so unfocused and so much lacking cohesion is because clearly they are trying to combine multiple series worth of story into this one show. But at the same time, it doesn't feel out of place. Like, it's obviously if they just dropped Zeb on us out of nowhere and and walked off, it would be like, okay, sure. But they use this, like, you got to tell me the name of the X-Wing pilot's name. Carson Teva. (laughs) Carson Teva, damn it. He has a little bit where he goes and hangs out with Tim Meadows, and it's just another great way to show the ineptitude of the new republic to like respond to emergencies that matter you know they're not listening to the people that are in the field they're not doing the things that the empire wouldn't do they're they're doing everything by the books and by the rules and if it's outside the rules then it's no good and that's it and you have our friend or not our decidedly not our friend (laughs) who betrayed dr pershing yeah and fried his little uh... mind palace there is, oh, so is here, sad. and she is really pushing the bureaucracy and the red tape of the yeah. New Republic. The Mando stuff, surprisingly enough, transitioning away from Carson, a name I will remember, uh, the Mando stuff was actually kind of more interesting. We, we, we get another return to Navarro. The pirate threat has come back. I gotta say, this episode... Kind of a crowd pleaser. There were multiple times where I was like, yes, yeah, that's dude. awesome. I was like, I can't believe that Star Wars is tricking me into being <laughs> hyped about this because... No, it's it's working. That Paz Vizsla speech, I was like, this man has me trying to join the way right now. What the hell is happening? I mean, my favorite part of the whole thing, the whole episode, probably, this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but when Mando's in that N1 Starfighter fighting those pirates and Karga's on the phone and he's like, Mando, it's good to see you. But be careful, they've got you outnumbered 10 to 1. And yeah, goes, dude! I like those odds. And it's like, yeah, baby, And then, and then Grief, Karga says, Grief Karga says, I bet you do, or oh. something like that. And I'm like, yeah, I bet he does. Hell yeah, we, he does. This stuff this is, is the season way. two of The Mandalorian that we deserved and not the one that we got. That's why I'm like, 
oh, this, is this season good or not? I'm so I'm so conflicted because I think it might be. I don't want to I don't want to jinx anything right now, but like this is finally finally after four very disparate, very tonally different episodes. This is the one where we're finally starting to pull things together. If we can get that string drawn tighter and tighter and focus in as we inertia our way, hopefully, into finding out a little bit more about what happened with that derelict Lambda shuttle and That's maybe who's saying. behind that breakout of Moff Gideon by the did, end of the season. You... I'm assuming that you noticed how much that, that R2 unit's probe droid the way it scanned the derelict ship looked exactly like the opening of aliens oh for sure i was almost distracted enough by i love the idea that the little periscope on an r2 unit can do like a like a fly around now but something carson's ever related that will bring us back to the mandalorians is another moment that made me cheer a little bit was when he gets to the mandalorian covert and he's like an old friend from the Rebellion told me where to go, and then R5 comes out, and I'm like... Ah, dude. I'm yeah, so... wait a minute. Was that... Is that... Is that in the verse? Is he, like, an agent? Well, they imply in... From a certain point of view, the R5 story, that he may have at one point belonged to a member of the Rebellion. Before oh, his that's was awesome. Wiped. That's actually really cool. I believe it's been implied by the Mandalorian since then that after whatever happened with him on Tatooine happened, that maybe he got involved with the Rebellion again. I like it. I'll take it. I I like secret spy R5. That's awesome. I don't know how that translates to, because my vibe has always been like, Amy Sedaris found him. It was just like, this is my (laughs) R5 unit now. R5 was retired. They brought him out of retirement. He was working with Millie or Pelly. Pelly. Pelly Modo. I don't know how that's in my brain, but it is. (laughs) I mean, she's one of my favorite characters on The Mandalorian. I get it. Very fun there. I thought you were going to say a moment that made me cheer was the happy Babu Fricks going, everybody's okay, it's okay. And I was like, yeah, it is okay, Babu Fricks. Hell yeah. Uh, the Babu Fricks are my friends, Seamus. They're my little friends. They're honestly them. the best. They're the best. They are new best friend creature in this in this universe. They're so funny. More Mandalorian stuff. They're they're setting up shop over there. I like that he took him up on the offer for land. But now I'm I'm kind of hoping that the Mandalorian transplants and like the citizens of Navarro are gonna kind of have a cultural clash. I I, I kind of want to see that. Oh, I'm assuming a bit. that's going to happen. And I think it's cool that Bo-Katan is like now nah, she can walk both of the ways. Yeah, she's a day walker. Which I was thinking about this. How the armor is being open-minded to the idea of walking both ways and bridging gaps, and especially with, like, Bo-Katan specifically. I almost thought that she was going to take her own helmet off for a second there. Like, maybe I also thought that maybe have a point, like, we can adapt and, imp- like, evolve our, our cult to be the way. But now she's like, you're going to be the leader and you're going to bring everyone back to the path, which I think is yeah. very weird and cool that they're going to try to like really traditionalize Mandalorian stuff again. Well, it got me wondering the fact that her armor is red and she has horns on her helmet. Do you think that the armor was a mall loyalist during the mall Whoa. upheaval on that Mandalore? Bro, that would be the coolest thing ever. Maybe that would be the coolest. And that's why it's such a devout member of the path because 
she has such shame of her and abandonment of the Mandalore, abandonment and that's of the way. What if I remember my Clone Wars correctly? It's been a couple of years. Gets Bo Katan to leave, like yeah. her terrorist cell is the fact that Maul takes it over and kills Pre Vizsla. Yeah, exactly right. Yes, and man, wouldn't that be the best showdown of all time? My goodness. So anyway, I was thinking about that, and then it would kind of make it would in a way it would kind of make sense that she would have hooked back up with the Vizslas if she's trying to like reform. Oh yeah, for, for sure. Being a mall loyalist, but also that her helmet and her armor are still reflecting that element of her past. That'll be good stuff. I hope you're right. I hope they're as smart as you are, Garrett. But who knows on that? They have to have had something in mind when they were creating the horns on her helmet, right? Like, that can't be a coincidence, I hope. I think her helmet is also very specifically, it's very, like, gladiator-style. Oh, it's, it's even more Spartan than a yeah, lot even, of the Yeah, Spartan, yeah. exactly. Maybe there is something there with, like, the design of what those helmets were, but I, I, I could not tell you if that's true. We're finally getting to a point where I don't hate the stupid Mandalorian covert, and I'm actually kind of a little bit into the drama of it, because I love the idea of they have to go back and capture Navarro, where they were once outcasts, but now they're heroes, and that was working for me, and the 15 people that live in the town on Navarro. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, the, the three families, it's like, evacuate the whole town, and it's like a dozen people, it's crazy. I am bummed that Grief Karga's cape droids did not make a return this episode. Oh, they didn't. He's moving too fast. He can't walk around for those things. <laughs> but the guy, that weird pirate henchman from the first episode, he gets away, right? He, he like, yeah. bails in his uh, regular ship. And they imply that maybe he could be in cahoots in some capacity with Moff Gideon because... Carson Tevez, like, I think the pirates are connected to the Empire. That is true. That is true. Oh, man. This is the first episode where I'm into the Book of Boba Fett setup. It feels like playing with the action figures that you have. Of Hell like, yeah. There's a Mandalorian, and he's got a Baby Yoda sidekick. And he goes around in a chrome N1 Starfighter. And my favorite <laughs> droid, R5-D4, is his Hell astromech yeah. pilot. <laughs> And I'm just like, this. there was some base part of my brain, the action figure playing part of my brain that was like, this is really fun. It's the best. I don't, I don't even know. I think I said it a couple episodes ago. I want the like Mando cult play set. Just give me, all the, give me all the action figures and I would play with them today. I don't know where Mando is going after that because Bo-Katan is going to go find Sabine, I'm assuming, among others. Probably, probably something. I mean, name another named famous Mandalorian character that's even still alive in this era. Well, I mean, she's probably going to go get some of her friends that left her on the Mandalorian moon or whatever. The last time Bo-Katan was trying to unite the tribes of Mandalore, it was Sabine right by her side. Very true. Very true. You can't forget that. And then, oh, we get Zeb and Sabine and maybe Hera and Chopper up up in the mix. And then we just have... The, it's like the Mando section of Book of Boba Fett, but it's the Rebels section of Mando Season 3. It'll probably be the Rebels part of Ahsoka, which is the thing that's so sad to me, is I really just wish, as cool as it is to see Zeb in live action and all this stuff, I really kind of just wish that we were doing a, another season of Star Wars Rebels on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, yeah, I know. Me, me, I mean, honest to God, Like me Rebels too, Reborn but... or something like that. That's pretty good, actually. But... I am holding out hope. If anything, one of the biggest hurdles for me was the Zeb stuff, whether or not he was even going to be in it, and if he was, if he would be a monster. But he is, I don't know, it's kind of awesome. 
they could pull that off. They it's the same guy that doing the great voice. I mean, I'm curious about what Zeb flies. I, mean, I can only imagine it has to be like he's he's doing U wing or some something big, something bulky. Well, I don't know what's Hera's deal after the Battle of Endor. Does she retire? No, she's in because she's in squadrons, so she's in the rebellion. Maybe maybe Hera and Zeb are still flying around on the ghost. Wouldn't that be something? Just just like old times, but he's like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that makes sense. It's a legendary ship. I mean, the Millennium Falcon gets to be in the fleet, even though yeah, it's exactly. a Corellian freighter. So. Yeah, he, he's a general driving around in a semi truck. Is what is what that is. <laughs> it really is. I too am curious to see where they're going forward with this, but if we get a little more Keller and Beck, and maybe a little more Mando Homestead. And sprinkle in a little Zeb again. I don't think we're seeing Zeb again in this. No, season, I don't think we're I seeing mean, Zeb till till Sabine till, and till Hera Ahsoka, show up. Yeah, but if any any little, little sprinkle of that, and I think I think we got our perfect storm coming up for the next episode. Yeah, I'm really hoping that. You know, we said last week, like next week it'll turn up. <laughs> Actually, we said two oh, yeah. weeks ago we're like next week will be the one, and then we were like, oh no, and then last week we we're like next week will be the one, and now I'm still like I don't know. <laughs> so you I know think- what? I'm gonna say it. I'm shame I'm putting my this is this is a good season and I'm calling it here and so if it's not then then we finally will get to know because I'll have jinxed it by next week. Yep. And if it is, I I'll be a champion. I will be the new Mandalore if I call it. It's gonna be a messy season no matter how well they manage to pull off the second half of the season. But mm-hmm. I'm going to stand by what I said at the beginning of this discussion, which is if they can continue the trajectory that they're on starting with this episode, that it will have a lot more in common with the season two of The Mandalorian that I was hoping to get than what we actually got last season. Completely agreed. I've got my fingers crossed. It's it's truly a coin flip. It might continue this trajectory and like really surprise us with the second half here and really come along, or... Well, you can't say it, or because you locked in that it's a good season, Shavis. So those I, are your options. Well, I guess technically it's not going to ruin the season when next week's episode is the Boba Fett episode of this season. But you know, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see if I am the jerk that jinxed it, so we have a Boba Fett episode next week. We have to talk about this. There is no Mando Bros next week. We're gonna have two back to back episodes. So that's really where you'll be vindicated or not vindicated, Seamus, is because Oh yeah, wow. In two weeks, that is when we're going to be seeing two episodes of the Mandalorian together because we are pre recording next week's episode because Seamus is gonna be out of the country or something. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. But what do you say we kick it on over and save the rec center, Garrett? Let's save it, Seamus. Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you got for me this week? Last week, Seamus, although to you it might not seem like it was last week, we talked about the John Wick trilogy on this show. Oh, of course, famously. We were a little bit curious about whether or not the fourth John Wick movie was going to be able to pull it off. Well, fortunately, I just went to see John Wick Chapter 4 in the movie theater, and it is the best John Wick of them all. It is stupendous. The action is the best it's ever been. It is a dazzling spectacle of action filmmaking. 
the lore has finally found the perfect balance between being enough to drive the plot forward, but not so much that I'm tired of all of the dumb lore stuff that we're dealing with. I can almost just not believe you. That sounds like an insane claim, Garrett, I'm going to be honest, but you've never steered me wrong in films. I think that if John Wick has reached its critical mass and it's absolutely doing it well, I definitely love to see this movie, at least while it's still in theaters. I feel like, would you recommend a theater viewing? Absolutely. If only because it's going to really keep you engaged for that full three-hour runtime, which I got to say, I was skeptical of its ability to prove its runtime to me, but it really kind of needs to be three hours to fit all the cool stuff into (laughs) it that you're going to fit into this one. I found the characters much more engaging this time around, and I think that you and I, when you get back, are going to have to find time to go over to the AMC and check this one out together, because I want to see it again. I think it's maybe the best action, not the best action movie, but maybe the best action since Mission Impossible Fallout. Wow, okay, and I loved the action of Mission Impossible Fallout. I know know that is a top quality mark right there we're gonna get into it soon i hope but first i would like to hear what your rec center is today what i have for my rec center this week is i've gotten my hands on all four of the original over the garden wall comic books published in 2015 by kaboom i'd never even really heard of kaboom Kaboom, i think it's like they do they do the bad firefly comics now oh do they really from the looks of the vintage ads in here it looks like a lot of like cartoon network adaptations of like spin-off things which is exactly what this over the garden wall miniseries is it's four independent stories that take place in between episodes of the show so it fits really easily into the continuity of everything even though it didn't really need to i there's actually an ongoing series of over the garden wall comics that i think takes a lot more liberties of stuff and like expands on on the story in general but these ones are just really funny really interesting little vignettes of like do you want to know the backstory of the talking horse and how he has a tragic connection to the highwayman from that one episode Or do you want to see a flashback to, like, the woodsman's daughter and their, like, relationship together before he goes out and gets tricked by the the beast? It's a lot of interesting ideas that seem like they were thought about a lot to, like, put this extra depth into these characters that we know for so tragically short of a time in, in this wonderful show. But they're all really funny. They're all really interesting. The art style is exactly what you want to see. At the back of every edition of the comics, there's, like, sheet music for the iconic songs in the show with, like, lyrics and notation. Which, Oh, that's awesome. If you like Over the Garden Wall, this comic is just, like, it's tailored to you in more than one way like that. There's, like, variant covers that show, like, Pottsfield and stuff, and you get all this, you know, extra stuff about Beatrice and her internal conflict about what she's doing with, like, Adelaide and, like, leading them to her might be a little hard to find physical copies out there, but I think you can find the, the PDF online copies pretty easily, and I, I highly recommend them. They're very charming, just like the show, and the humor in them is is right up the same alley. I thought it might be a little hard without Greg's voice. It reads perfectly in their voices, so I I couldn't recommend them more. I love Over the Garden Wall, and I think it's a perfect little piece of media, but the fact mm. that you're telling me that there is supplementary material that has the same tone and quality of the series, I definitely am going to be stealing those for you soon, Oh, Shamus, dude, I will straight up 
for sure trade you some some comic books. But that wraps us up for the show this week. If you want to reach the show on social media, that's at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also reach the show directly by emailing popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. And please like, subscribe, rate, review, do all of the things that you can to engage with us wherever you do listen to us. It helps the show in incredible ways. The the spikes we see in our engagement make us personally just two happy little podcast boys. Please like two Babu up. freaks going, everything will be okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. We are two little podcast Babu freaks who just eat up your engagement every single time. Next week, we are, as previously broadcast, not going to have Mando Bros., because we have a pre-recorded episode that's in the can and coming out soon, and that'll be the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again, a return to our <laughs> Disney Plus ah. deep dive series. I am very excited to to return to Theodore and Amos and Donovan and Dusty and the rest of the Apple Dumpling Gang over there. Yeah, the whole family will be in this movie, guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait for everybody to hear that one. It was a blast to to revisit for sure, but that's for next week, folks. You got to stick around. And if you haven't gone back and listened to our first Apple Dumpling Gang episode that came out a little over a year ago, recommend that's pre that's required <laughs> yeah. reading. Yeah, that's the get to... that's the homework for everybody because it's it's a it's a crazy time. You'll see when you get you'll see when you get there. We will see you when the Apple Dumpling Gang rides again. Adios, amigos. <laughs>